Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the A to Z of David Bowie. I'm Mark Riley, and that colourful character is Rob Hughes. As you'll be aware, the A to Z of David Bowie is free to download. <laughs> Lunacy. But if you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, You can, and here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things, and for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Right, so now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right, Mark. Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Material such as... Interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends. There'll be regular filmed Bowie quizzes. Bowie guitar tutorials. Unreleased archive written material. Competitions. And perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Nock and Jason Reed. Visiting various Bowie places of interest. And much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, bowie at cheapthings.com. Book early. T is for top trumps. What, Bob? Top trumps, Mark, explain. You're joking. Oh, yeah, no, I I know all about this. So top trumps, for those of you out there with children or a very childish mentality, you will be aware of top trumps, which is basically a card game uh, whereby you get something of a similar category. Could be sports people or it could be musicians. On this particular occasion, somebody very, very kindly, the people who made him actually, um, sent me a box of a David Bowie trumps. Okay, I think it's a company called Gazoo. Um, But yeah, what you do, if if you don't know how it all transpires, basically you'll get a different kind of character for David Bowie throughout his career. Could be musical, could be filmic, lots of different things. And so um, the categories in this, the categories for the sports one will be different. It will be like, you know, a shooting prowess or accuracy or lifespan or whatever. Yeah, sure. sure in this yeah. is alien factor, pop sensation, outrageous fashion, hedonism, I'm an actor and Bowie rating. Yes, that's right. Okay. And that one in particular was uh, just a guy in a rock band, funnily enough, which is uh, looked very much to me like Tin Machine. Ah, right. Okay. So um, I'll put that to the bottom now and that can go away. Okay. And um, so, so I have, a, I have a, like half the pack. 
and Rob has half the pipe. We'll just go have a bit of a go at it here. So we are, yeah. Lead the way, Bubba. That's just alarmed me, by the way. The plastic soul Bowie, the picture of him now, looks like a more alarming like Harry Redknapp. I'm just going <laughs> to pop that to the bottom of the pack anyway. Let's hope we don't get there. So just uh, the object of the game, of course, you know, whoever gets the highest score on each round, I get your card if I win, you get mine if you win. I forgot that bit. Now That's also, important. Yeah, so also, what it is that he, Bob's leading and uh, he can pick the category yes. that he wants that he thinks is going to beat mine, okay? Okay, so I've got a lovely uh, illustration, black-white illustration here, the Thin White Duke. So let's see. I'm going to go for Hedonism. Uh, the score, 65 here. You win. I've got John Blaylock from The Hunger and his Hedonism account is 41. So there you shocking. go, Bob, you can yeah. have that. Oh, mate. Oh. All right, I've got the Gene Genie now. Uh, let's see. Okay. Mm, Bowie rating, 61. Oh, my, uh, well, I've got 23 here, mate. Oh. I've, 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 have... I've got the uh, runt of the pack here. Oh, you had Baal, didn't you? <laughs> Surprise. Yeah. Yes. Oh, Hall- Halloween Jack. So uh, Bowie with his little pirate. Uh, the ooh, uh, Oh, now. Oh, I don't want to win that one again. Alien Factor, 43 here, mate. <sighs> well, oh, I've got on. Paul... Paul von Prisgodsky, right, from Just a Gigolo. Now, I can't pronounce it because I've never seen the film. Me neither. I couldn't pronounce it even if I had seen it. But yeah. what was it that you went for? I went for Alien Factor 43. 11. Oh, that well. This that, is just a whitewash, this, mate. You're going to win. Oh, listen, I've got Lodger here, so I could be on shaky ground here. I'm going to go for, all right, Pop Sensation 16. 28. I I'm, knew you'd win that. I've got Button Eyes from Black Star. Oh, Give me that back, mate. Yeah, right, okay. So, so that got, goes to the bottom of the pack now. Yeah. I lead the way now, don't I? Well, you do lead the way, so. I ahead. call the shots. Okie dokie. Oh, uh, I've got a lad insane. Oh, oh, man. I'll just give it you now. Outrageous fashion. Go on. 30 bloody six. 40 bloody three. Oh, that's I've got, over. I've got Boz from the Om- <laughs> Omicron video game. <laughs> All right, I had a lad insane. You were never going to win that one. No, never. never. Oh, here's a chance for you to get some cards back, mate. I've got Major Jack Sellers here. I've from... won this one. Ooh, uh, I'm an actor. 20. Oh, you swine. Oh, I've got Ziggy Stardust. Oh, He's eight. You You're good at this, oh, mate. Oh, great. Oh, I've got Elephant Man. <laughs> um, all right, then. So um... Outrageous fashion you should go for. <laughs> that that loincloth. Oh, well, I will, you know. 26. Beat that. Well, I've got Davy Jones, you know, with his long hair. Yeah. Nine. Oh, oh this no is a, it's a crap game. This, I'm really, I'm I'm loving this. This is great. Uh, oh, what a lovely illustration, Thomas Jerome Newton. Well, you're getting all beautiful, the ones, beautiful. Yeah. I'm going to let you win this one. So I'm just going to say, uh, pop sensation seventeen. Pop sensation, Jareth the Goblin King, 31. Oh, there you go, I told you. I think people get the kind of point yeah. now, don't they? And they also get the impression that you're winning them all as well, Bob, which, well, you, yeah, you've got all the good ones there. I'll tell you what, it's a beautiful set of cards, Harry, Harry Redknapp aside. You know, it's uh, beautifully illustrated, these. It's tremendous. great. Yeah. It whiles away the yeah. hours, yeah. particularly when you're winning. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. T is also for... Pete Townsend. Peter Dennis Blanford Townsend, born the 19th of May 1945, is an English singer, songwriter and multi-instrumentalist, best known as a lead guitarist, second vocalist and principal songwriter for the rock band The U. He is. His career with The U spans over 50 years, during which time the band grew to be one of the most important rock bands of the 20th century. As the main songwriter for The Who, uh, Townsend has written well over 100 tunes for the band's 11 studio albums, including concept albums like The Who Sell Out, rock operas Tommy and Quad plus rock classics like Who's Next and dozens more that appeared as non-album tracks and singles or on rarities compilations like Odds and Sods. He's also written more than 100 songs that have appeared on his solo albums as well as radio jingles and television theme tunes. Although known primarily as a guitarist, he also plays keyboards, banjo, accordion, harmonica, ukulele, mandolin, violin, synthesizer, bass guitar and drums on his own solo albums, several Who albums and as a guest contributor to an array of other artists' recordings. He is self-taught on all the instruments he plays and has never had any formal training. Clever chap. Indeed. Townsend was born on the 19th of May 1945 at Chiswick Hospital in Middlesex. He came from a musical family. His father, Cliff, was a professional alto saxophonist in the Royal Air Force's dance band, the Squadronaires, and his mum, Betty, was a singer with the Sydney Torch and Les Douglas Orchestras. The Townsends had a volatile marriage as both drank heavily and possessed fiery tempers. Cliff Townsend was often away from his family touring with his band while Betty carried on affairs with other men. The two split when Townsend was a toddler and he was sent to live with his maternal grandmother, Emma Dennis, whom Pete later described as clinically insane. Yeah, that's, that's a, worrying. That's a whole other story, that one. There. The two-year separation ended when Cliff and Betty bought a house together on Woodgrange Avenue in middle-class Acton and the young Pete was happily reunited with his mum and dad. He says... He did not have many friends growing up, so he spent much of his boyhood reading adventure novels like Gulliver's Travels and Treasure Island. He enjoyed his family's frequent excursions to the seaside and the Isle of Man. It was on one of these trips in the summer of 1956 that he repeatedly watched the 1956 film Rock Around the Clock, sparking his fascination with American rock and roll. Not long thereafter, he went to see Bill Haley perform in London, Townsend's first concert. At the time, he didn't see himself pursuing a career as a professional musician. Instead, he wanted to become a journalist. 
Upon passing the 11 plus exam, Townsend was enrolled at Acton County Grammar School. At Acton County, he was frequently bullied because he had a large nose, an experience that profoundly affected him. Bob, I just need to stop at this t- point in time because I'm just a kindred spirit. I've got a right old hooch on I there. have too. And I got bullied at school terribly for my nose. And what happened was, my dad took me out of school in summer mm. and taught me how to box, right? Yes. And then I went back into school and I beat everybody up. And then it was the following year that I started boxing properly right. for, a, for a living. Right. <laughs> I knew all this. It's on your Wikipedia page. <laughs> and then what happened was I, I rose through the ranks and I was a flyweight, I was a bantamweight, yeah. I was a heavyweight. I was, my, 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 well, weight, my weight was up and down. It did fluctuate, yes. yeah. And, uh, and I ended up becoming a world title holder. Oh, so incredible, yeah. If anybody out there has got a big nose, then just yeah. don't worry about it. Just go boxing. Yeah, just or make up a story about yourself. Absolutely. <laughs> One or the other, really. Townsend's <laughs> uh, grandmother Emma bought his first guitar for Christmas in 1956, an inexpensive Spanish model. Although his father taught him a couple of chords, Townsend was largely self-taught on the instrument and never learned to read music, as you mentioned before. He and his schoolmate, John Entwistle, formed a short-lived trad jazz band, The Confederates, featuring Townsend on banjo and Entwistle on horns. I wouldn't have said that was trad jazz, banjo and horns. It doesn't sound like it, does it? <laughs> and my mind is also taken by the fact that he's dad bought him an inexpensive Spanish model. <laughs> what a treat. <laughs> it's not a bad Christmas present, is it? <laughs> oh, how times have changed. <laughs> the Confederates played gigs at the Congo Club, a youth club by the Acton Congregational Church, and covered Akabilk, Kenny Ball, and inevitably, yeah. Lonnie Donegan. Oh, yes. However, both became influenced by the increasing popularity of rock and roll, with Townsend particularly admiring Cliff Richard's debut single, Move It. He left the Confederates after getting into a fight with the group's drummer, Chris Sherwin, and purchased a reasonably good Czechoslovakian guitar at his mum's antique shop. Not a Czechoslovakian model. No, unfortunately. <laughs> so here we go. Townsend's brothers, Paul and Simon, were born in 1957 and 1960, respectively. And I know at one point in time they were considered to be called Art and Garfunkel. <laughs> I knew you were going to say <laughs> see that coming. Sorry, it's getting a bit comedic oh, this episode, isn't it? Uh, lacking the requisite test scores to attend university, Pete was faced with the decision of art school, music school, or getting a job. He ultimately chose to study graphic art at Ealing Art College, enrolling in 1961. At Ealing, Townsend studied alongside future Rolling Stones guitarist Ronnie Wood. Future Queen lead singer Freddie Mercury also studied there soon after. Ooh, uh, notable artists and designers gave lectures at the college, such as auto-destructive art pioneer Gustav Metzger, I think he also studied under um, uh, Ron Kittai, didn't he? Did he? Yeah. Who's that? He's a famous kind of pre-pop artist. Is he? Right. Yeah. I don't know him. Uh, Townsend dropped out in 1964 to focus on music full-time. In late 61, Entwistle joined the Detours, a skiffle rock and roll band led by Roger Daltrey. The new bass player then suggested Townsend to join as an additional guitarist. In the early days of the Detours, the band's repertoire consisted of instrumentals by The Shadows and The Ventures, as well as pop and trad jazz covers. Their lineup coalesced around Roger Daltrey on lead guitar, Townsend on rhythm guitar, Entwistle on bass, Doug Sand on drums and Colin Dawson as vocalist. Dolce was considered the leader of the group and, according to Townsend, ran things the way he wanted them. Because he was the artist, wasn't he? He was. He was a tough nut. You wouldn't mess with him. I can't yeah. imagine Dolce playing lead guitar. That's intriguing. Yeah. I mean, did he ever play guitar with The Who? Did he ever, like, pick it like Mick Jagger does randomly with The Stones, doesn't he? Not really, no. It was all Townsend. Yeah. You know, and in the studio, it'd be overdubs and right. stuff. Uh, so uh, Dawson quit in 1962 after arguing too much with Daltrey, who subsequently moved to lead vocalist. As 
a result, Townsend, with Entwistle's encouragement, became the sole guitarist. Through Townsend's mum, the group obtained a management deal with local promoter Robert Druce, who started booking the band as a support act. For people like Screaming Lord Such, Cliff Bennett and the Rebel Rousers, Shane Fenton and the Fentones, and Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. In 1963, Townsend's father arranged an amateur recording of It Was You, the first song his son ever wrote. The Detours became aware of a group of the same name in February 1964, forcing them to change the name. Townsend's roommate, Richard Barnes, came up with The U, and Daltrey decided it was the best choice, and if Roger decided it was the best choice, it, it was the best choice. Yes, absolutely. In 1964, the formation of The U. So that was Townsend's early life anyway, so we need to get onto the Bowie connection, really. Yeah. So his first tangible association with The Who seems to come in the January of 1965 when their managed boys approached The Who's producer, Shel Talmy, more of which in a bit, to produce their record. On the 3rd of July now, 1965, there was a letter that appeared in Melody Maker written by the sister of Dennis Teacup Taylor of the Lower Third that went, The Who are only bordering on this new sound. If they want the real thing, listen to Davy Jones on the Lower Third. So Friday the 20th of August 1965, Bournemouth Pavilion Ballroom. Davy Jones and the Lower Third perform, opening for The U. Now we're going to have a look at uh, Phil Lancaster's book, At the Birth of Bowie here, yeah. which is a great book. And I have to say, uh, Phil, we've done a section on him anyway, he's a brilliant fella uh, but this just captures the whole uh, the whole episode really the weekend that the who came down to play with us in bournemouth friday the 20th of august 1965 to be exact was certainly one of the highlights for me to get ourselves fully prepared for this important evening gig we had an extra afternoon rehearsal to ensure that we were at the top of our game while we eagerly awaited their arrival at the pavilion uh, part of the way through performing one of dave's original efforts pete townsend walked into the ballroom which immediately got our attention when we finished the number he approached the stage to say hello and asked two songs it was that we were playing, to which Dave replied, It's mine! <laughs> That's a shame, says Pete. Sounds like my stuff. I think he was initially taken back a bit. He said uh, that was the first time that Pete and Dave properly acquainted themselves, I believe. After we stopped rehearsing, I sat with Pete to chat and he asked me about earnings. He initially asked me what we were on and I dreaded the embarrassment of telling him, but before I could answer him, he volunteered, We're on 50 quid a week. Do you think that's all right? Yes, I said, sounds all right to me. Bloody hell, just a bit. It seems that the afternoon was very memorable for David too, as he recalled during an interview in 1993. We had a thing about the Who, said David. In fact, we used to play second support to them in Bournemouth. That was the first time I met Townsend and got talking to him about songwriting and stuff. I was hugely influenced by him. We had songs called Baby Loves That Way, You've Got a Habit of Leaving, some really duff things. Townsend came into our sound check, listened to a couple of things and said... You're trying to write like me. I said, yeah, what do you think? He said, mm, well, there's a lot of bands around like you at the moment. I don't think he was very impressed. So uh, back to Phil uh, Lancaster now. He says, just before the gig in the dressing room, which we were sharing with them, Pete called me over to show me his new Fender Stratocaster sitting gleaming in its case. Are you going to smash it up tonight? I asked. No, he replied with a serious look on his face. I've got too much on higher purchase. Uh, I had a friendly chat with Roger Daltrey as well, who initially said to me, I know you, don't I? I'm not sure who I'm reminded of, but I replied, no, we haven't met before. As we were chatting, I watched him slide some lifts into his shoes. He looked at me and said with a smile, I have to use them, otherwise nobody's going to see me. Right. <laughs> it's just a great image. I have no memory of John Entwistle at all. It's like he wasn't there. And contrary to his wild man legend, Keith Moon was as quiet as a mouse. I know he became a close friend of David's in later years, but I can't remember him talking with any of us that night. When The Who did their set, I watched them from behind the stage. Roger Daltrey was in full flow, whacking Keith Moon's cymbals with his mic, and when he spotted me, he smiled and held up his hand to show me it was bleeding. 
Uh, it was an electric night. The Who were amazing and the audience went wild. It was brilliant to have been part of such a special evening and I've no doubt that our set with our band of loyal local followers in support added greatly to it all. In fact, if you've been near the front towards the end of your, our set, you'd be very likely to have collected a free single. Ralph had brought a whole box with them, handed them all out to eager hands as he mingled with the audience. When I think about it now and compare them to their value today, Ralph probably gave away the best part of £15,000 in a few seconds, meaning Ralph Horton, of course, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So Phil continues in his book, Later, Pete came back to the hotel with Ralph and the rest of us for a nightcap. Pete paid for a round of drinks, which we both carried from the bar together before setting back into the hotel lounge to talk. Pete asked Ralph if he promoted at any other venues and we spoke about stage presentation. Pete saying something like, you can put a Union Jack on John Entwistle and he'll just stand there and wear it. <laughs> uh, by that, I think he was describing John Entwistle's taciturn demeanour, that you could dress him up in the latest trendy clobber, but his actual performance would remain exactly the same. Dave listened on intently as Pete pretty much led the way with the conversation. Pete was obviously aware that we were all in awe of him and the Who in general, and it was really good of him to treat us so well. That night, Pete Townsend came across as a really decent guy, and I've since heard a number of people talking similarly of him. He made us all feel like equals. When it was time to call it a night, Pete asked where we were staying. A caravan, we answered. I wish I was, he said, meaning, I guess, that he was fed up with hotels. I'm not sure he would have liked our leaky caravan that much, though. Of course, both Pete and Roger are still working to this day. I'm delighted to say that it's quite something, particularly as Pete's hearing was badly damaged by the extreme volume at the earlier gigs. I know that both men are also passionate about their support of the Teenage Cancer Trust and have raised many millions of pounds for charity and other equally important causes over the years. And then he goes on, uh, yeah, about... Uh, well, he just continues in yeah. his book about his career, basically. Okay, wonderful. That is at the all for Phil Lancaster at the birth of Bowie, uh, which is a great book, and it's published by John Blake Books, which you can find at johnblakebooks.com, Okay, you might it, imagine. Interesting mention there, the Union Jack jacket, which, of course, you know, Bowie definitely referenced, didn't he, on the cover of with his frock coat on Earthling? He most certainly did. Okay, so um, uh, I'm Pete Townsend, 1975. Yes, yeah, this is a quote from Townsend. He said, I used to meet him very occasionally because we had the same music publisher. He's talking about Bowie, of course. And he was always complimenting me on odd songs he'd heard at the publishers that hadn't been released. I'd heard quite a lot of his work, a fantastic amount of which just piled up. I think that when he finally launched himself into the business, he used up all that experience. And although you've got this tremendous, spacey, glittery and unreal figure, the incredible thing about it, that it was very, very real. OK, we're skipping on a few years now then. So the 5th of July, 1969, the same day the Rolling Stones played Hyde Park, the Who play at the Royal Albert Hall. Bowie goes to see them. Davy gives an advanced copy of Space Oddity to Pete Townsend, who writes him a note afterwards saying he likes it very much. In 1999, Bowie said of the note, I thought, if ever I get really big, I'll try and be as nice as that to people. What a great quote. Now, the morning after he'd heard that Bowie had died, Townsend posted on the Who website. He said, woke up to the awful news that my lovely friend David Bowie passed away. I'm so deeply sad, but he just completed a radical and audacious new album, meaning Black Star, of course, and that is a great thing. Personally, I'm grateful to him for doing it. And then he posted a bit more, didn't he? As a further blog as well. Yeah, he also posted something on his own personal website, and this is uh, what he put. Yeah, it's uh, described as a heartfelt tribute to David Bowie. He said, For those who were his fans, he was a charismatic and exotic creature and still gloriously beautiful even as he approached 70. But face to face, he was funny, 
clever, well-read, excited by the arts and really good company. It was simply a joy to be around, so good at making everybody else feel at ease. My thoughts now go to his family and close ones and to so many of his fans who'll be beyond distraught today. We have lost a monumental figurehead of the British arts scene. We've also lost a wonderful clown whose combined sense of mischief and creativity delighted and touched our hearts. David Bowie was my Salvador Dali. He was also one facet of my perfect ace face. So this is uh, the journalism based around the quote from Pete Townsend on his website. Pete's friendship with David Bowie goes all the way back to the mid-60s in Mod London, when the Who were making their mark in the mod community at such venues as the Marquee Club. David was also on the scene performing R&B songs with David Jones in various early mod bands, such as the Conrads, the King Bees, the Riot Squad, and David Jones and the Lower Third. As a tribute to this era, David Bowie released Pin Ups in 1973, a covers album of mid-60s hits that included the Who's I Can't Explain and Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere. He later recorded a cover of Pictures of Lily for the 2001 tribute album Substitute, The Songs of the Who. So there's a quote now from uh, David Bowie on the Pinups radio show. He says, So there you were. You had the Pretties, the Yardbirds, and if you ventured down the marquee on a Sunday night, the Floyd with Dear Old Sid, or the Animals down Wimpole Street at the Scene Club, Eel Pie Island, Ricky Tick Club for the creation, or Reggie's Mob the Action. But the biggest buzz was back at the marquee. They dressed weeks out of date, but they did all the right stuff. Martha and Vandellas and all that. A lot of action on the night. They were our band, The Who. Pete also worked with Davy Bowie a couple of times, recording his signature guitar tracks on Bowie songs Because You're Young on the Scary Monsters album 1980 and Slow Burn on Heathen in 2002. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. T is for Talmy, Shell Talmy. Sheldon Talmy, to give him his full name, born on the 11th of August 1937, an American record producer, songwriter and arranger, best known for his work in London with The Who and The Kinks in the 60s, with a role in many other English bands, including Cat Stevens and Pentangle. Talmy arranged and produced hits such as You Really Got Me by The Kinks, My Generation by The Who and Friday On My Mind by The Easy Beats. He also played guitar or tambourine on some of his productions. Yeah, he was born in Chicago, Illinois, and from an early age he was interested in music. All kinds, early rock, rhythm and blues, folk music and country music, as well as technology. At the age of 13, Talmy appeared regularly on the popular NBC TV television show Quiz Kids, a question and answer programme out of Chicago. He told Chris Ambrose of Tokion magazine, What it did for me was that I absolutely knew that this was a business I wanted to be in. Quiz Kids, what a great idea. Hope it's not like Child Genius. Mm. He graduated from Fairfax High School in LA in June 1955, part of the same graduating class as future producer David Andale. He became a recording engineer at Conway Studios in Los Angeles for the owner-engineer Phil Yeend, who trained Talmy on three-track recording equipment. Three days after starting at Conway, Talmy had his first production assignment, the record Falling Star by Debbie Sharon. At Conway, he worked with artists like Gary Paxton, with surf bands like the Castells and the Marquettes, and R&B pioneers Rennie Hall and Bumps Blackwell. Talmy and Yeend often experimented with production techniques. They played with separation and recording levels, and they built baffles and platforms covered with carpet, using them to isolate vocals and instruments. In an interview with Terry Stone in Music Producers, Talmy recalled that Yeend would let me do whatever I wanted after our regular sessions were over. So I used to work out miking techniques for how to make drums sound better or guitar sound better. There really weren't many precedents, so we were all doing it for the first time together. It was all totally new. 
1962, Tommy went to Britain. Uh, Nick Venet, a good friend and producer at Capitol Records, gave him a stack of his own acetates to take along with him and use, if he could, as his own. Ah, Tommy joined Decca Records as a record producer working with Decca's pop performers, such as the Irish trio The Bachelors, leading to the release of the hit sing Charmaine. Now, if you were to get an amnesty and get all of the Bachelors records yes. in charity shops at this point in time and mm-hmm. put them into a warehouse, you could break any vinyl shortage in the world within a day. Of course you could, yes. I'm they still are. looking in charity shops now and they're just absolutely everywhere. If it's not The Bachelors, it's Jim Reeves. It's a good point. Yeah. In 1963, Talmy met Robert Wace, the manager of a group called The Ravens, who later changed the name to The Kinks. He brought The Kinks into the studio and their third single, You Really Got Me, of course, as we know, became a landmark recording. According to John Savage, hello John, author of the Kinks' official biography, what Shell Talmy and the Kinks did with this particular record was to concoct the perfect medium for expression of the adolescent white aggression that has been at the heart of white popular music. You Really Got Me is that rare thing, a record that cuts popular music in half. That's a great quote. Talmy had many more hits with the Kinks, including All Day and All of the Night, Tired of Waiting for You, dedicated follower of fashion and sunny afternoon. When asked in later years about his experience with the kinks, tell me said, Ray was always difficult. Mm, no kidding. I didn't have a problem with anybody else. Ray was moody. And I think it's fair to say jealous from the outset that I was the quote unquote producer and that he wasn't. We were obviously close in age, which made it even more difficult. Pete Townsend, guitarist for the High Numbers, liked You Really Got Me so much that he wrote a similar number, I can't explain, so that Talmy would produce his group, which is funny, because obviously that's the one that Bowie again went on to record, as we mentioned, on pinups. Yeah. When the song was played over the telephone to Talmy, he agreed to hear the band. Now called The U, uh, the band was signed to his production company, Talmy got the band a contract with Decca in America and with their subsidiary, Brunswick, in Britain. The intentional feedback on the band's second single, Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere, caused Decca executives to send back the recording think that they received a faulty pressing. Great story. Talmy and The Who created a historic recording, My Generation, the group's third release, Entertainment Weekly, later called My Generation, the quintessential rock single. Talmy produced other notable singles for The Who before producing their first album, My Generation, a collection of originals and R&B covers. However, tensions arose between Talmy and one of the band's managers, Kit Lambert. Lambert fired Talmy, but Talmy sued for breach of contract and he won. One of the byproducts of this episode was a B-side single from the Graham Bond organisation called Waltz for a Pig, an apparent reference to the departed producer. Ouch. Talmy continued to work with other distinguished British performers throughout the 60s, including the singer-songwriter Davy Jones, ah. later known as Davy Bowie. He produced a Roy Harper album, Come Out Fighting Genghis Smith, in 1967. He also produced Friday On My Mind, also on pinups, for the Easy Beats, an Australian band that had moved to Britain. Yeah, as you just mentioned, Bowie covered Friday On My Mind for pinups. Talmy has said that he did some of his most essential work with The Creation, a mod psychedelic band that often used pop art imagery, well known as the creators of Making Time. Okay, so on to the Bowie connection now then. So, Davy Jones and the Manish Boys had the first rehearsal with Talmy in November 1964, and he was Bowie's first professional producer. In January 65, Talmy gave one of Bowie's songs, Take My Tip, to the American actor, Kenny Miller, who was trying to cross over into the pop market at that time. Around the same time, Talmy agreed to produce the Manish Boys' first single. 
At the recording sessions for I Pity the Fool and Take My Tip on the 15th of January 1965, Talmy brings in session guitarist Jimmy Page, who brings along his new Fuzzbox effects pedal. In March that year, the Manish Boys travel to the Mayfair Hotel in London to play at Talmy's wife's 21st birthday party. We've mentioned this before, but that is the one where uh, Jimmy Page just looks up at the man and goes, this ain't going to be yeah, it. That's right. By May 65, it all started to go sour for the Manish Boys after Talmy invited band members Bob Solly and Paul Rodriguez Rodriguez to write songs for his production company. Unbeknownst to them, Talmy also had Bowie under contract as a songwriter. And of course, there was an awkward meeting at Talmy's office in Soho. Yeah, we don't know if that was engineered, do we? Um, in June, and now with Davy Jones in the lower third, Bowie was persuaded by manager Leslie Conn to sign a new deal with Talmy to produce You've Got a Habit of Leaving for Parlophone. Talmy also produced Baby Loves That Way, though, according to Kevin Can's book, Any Day Now, brilliant, get it if you haven't got it, the session didn't go smoothly. Bowie and Talmy often had disagreements in the studio. So, recorded in July 1965 at IBC Studios in London, You've Got a Habit of Leaving, turned out to be the last song written and released by Bowie under his own name, of David Jones as David Jones a lower third so we know the lineup don't we David Jones vocals sax and harmonica Dennis Teacup Taylor lead guitar Graham Death Rivens on bass and Phil Lancaster on drums yeah Talmy also booked a studio session for Bowie to demo some new songs on guitar during the summer of 1965 three demos which Talmy had stowed away for decades resurfaced in 1991 on the early on compilation uh, that's where my heart is I want my baby back and bars of the county jail which county is that then oh I don't know Mark uh, three other demos surfaced later how can I forget you it's true my love and I live in dreams uh, this now is from an interview with Richie Unterberger uh, talking to Shell Tell Me about his career and, of course, uh, about the Bowie connection. And the question he asked was, uh, you worked with David Bowie when he was still known as Davy Jones. He said, I always liked him. I always thought he was incredibly talented. He was extremely bright. He impressed me as knowing exactly where he was going. He was 17 when I first recorded him with the Manish Boys. I honestly didn't think uh, that what he was writing at the time had a snowball's chance in hell of making it, but I thought, he's so original and brash, Let's take a flyer. It continued, so we did a bunch of them, and of course he didn't make it. And it wasn't until seven or eight years later that a window of opportunity opened for his style of music, and he made the most of it, of course. There wasn't a whole lot of difference between what I did with them and what he did seven or eight years later. Just that at the time we put it out, nobody wanted to know. It was weird music. Yeah, and this now, just a brief snippet from a more recent interview with a guy called Bill Kopp in 2017, uh, talking to Shalmi, and he says, uh, David was brought to my office by a guy that I knew who was kind of a gadfly around town. I liked him immediately. I thought he was smart, he was brash like I was, and I thought he was very talented. Uh, the singles, the only songs which Talmy worked on with Jones or Bowie, weren't commercially successful, but Talmy had high hopes for the young David. He said, I thought he was absolutely going to make it, Talmy recalls. The only unfortunate thing is that he and I were about six years ahead of the market that accepted him. Not sure that I agree with all that. I mean, uh, he was very, very derivative, as we know. So for uh, Pete Townsend to walk into uh, the uh, the show uh, in Bournemouth and just say, who wrote these songs? Mm. I did. You're copying me, aren't you? I am, what do you think? So they were obviously very, very influenced by Townsend and several other people yeah, as well. Yeah. And you can't really say that too much of the ensuing Bowie. I mean, you know, Starman doesn't particularly sound no. like anybody else. So, you know, I mean, if you're looking at a genre, 
and you're looking at hunky dory and then through to Ziggy Stardust, most of it doesn't sound anything like you've got a habit of leaving. No, I no. think tell me he's just trying to make a late claim for fame there. It's saying, you know, I just I was there at the outset, I discovered him kind of thing. It's one of those, but you can't it, it was very derivative R and B. Yeah, and he didn't discover him. I mean, they went searching him because of yeah. his previous work, which is a genius. We know that yeah. an amazing producer. And I wonder if he was there when um, Dave Davis famously cut the speaker on his on his amplifier to get that rip sound, you know, which which is a famous moment yeah. in rock history. Uh, I wonder if he had anything to do with that. Anyway, we may never know. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. T is for the Three Tons. Oh, legendary. So the Three Tons was situated at 157 High Street. This pub is now used as a restaurant. It is indeed. So this is written by Ian Muir, February 2012. Uh, he said, David Bowie was still a long way from superstar status, despite having been in the music business for several years. He was living in Beckenham with a friend, Mary Finnegan, and appearing most Sundays at the Three Tons pub in Beckenham High Street. The shows began as a way for him and Mary to make a little money and to showcase his talents, but developed into what was christened the Beckenham Arts Lab Growth. Bowie went on to fame and fortune, but it was not until 2001 that a plaque commemorating his involvement with the town was hung outside the pub that was by then known as the Rat and Parrot. The pub changed its name to the Rat and Parrot in the late 90s, then changing it back to the Three Tons just before it shut again and became a pizza restaurant. And during the development, the plaque was taken down and it took another four years to get it reinstated. OK, so then Mary Finnegan um, updated this three years later. Yeah, she did. So she says a correction to Ian Muir's description the folk club started by David Bowie and I happened every Sunday. It morphed into the Beckenham Arts Lab by popular request, became a folk club again after I was no longer involved. David gave up on it because he became disillusioned with the clientele, who he said only wanted to be entertained, a damp squib after the idealistic intensity of the Arts Lab. So we've covered the uh, Beckenham Arts Lab, and so we can't yeah. really go too far into it. But um, it was it was a very creative place, and that has been uh, mentioned before, that Bowie just thought that people were tipping up, paying the money, and saying, yeah. all right, do something. Yeah. Whereas, do you know, it is funny, because I've just interviewed Steve Harley, and yes. it's up now on Cheap Things. Uh, so that is patreon.com forward slash cheap things. It's our celebration, kind of like a website, a members club, and uh, you can get it online if you want to go and join it. And there's loads of stuff on there. We've had interviews with Mike Garson and Pete Wiley, a great thing about him got to see Bowie at the Hard Rock in Manchester and uh, Phil Lancaster who yeah. previously mentioned and uh, lots of different people Woody Woodmansey did a great interview for us so there's loads going on there but the most recent interview is by Steve Harley mm. and so I had a chat with him and he was basically he said that he wasn't really interested in talking about Bowie he said I'm Bowied out yeah you know? so yeah. when he was one of those things he was a bit worried about when like when Bowie died and when Mark Boland died he said you get wheeled out and then you just keep saying the same thing again and again it's a bit like oh not him again mm. so he said I'm a bit bowied out so I said right okay because I know him a little bit Steve mm. and he's brilliant mm. and I said oh okay I just wanted to talk to you about the Beckenham Arts Lab and Haddon Hall and he went oh I'll talk about them ah okay and so he and that's what brought him in on it and so we did talk about Haddon Hall as you will hear in the interview and I won't go too far into it because you can listen to what Steve said himself in his own words uh, but the short and long of it he used to go to the Beckenham Arts Lab and as is intimated by the uh, disgruntlement by Bowie at the end felt yeah. by Bowie yeah. was the fact that there were uh, open spots which is what Steve called them, mm. which is like an open mic now. Mm. And so you would go and take your guitar, and then when Bowie had finished and go for an interval or whatever, they'd say, anybody want to come up and do a bit of uh, entertaining for everybody else? And you put your hand up, you get brought out. And so Steve Harley was doing 
stuff which eventually ended up on the first Cockney Rebel album, The Human Menagerie. Oh, okay, wow. I thought he'd be doing cover versions yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But he wasn't. He was even busking doing that stuff. It's, it's, it's wow. a brilliant story. It's yeah. a brilliant interview. He's great. Um, and so much so did he become embroiled in the Arts Lab that when Bowie went off touring in 1971, um, Steve did the uh, curating and the emceeing for about 10 weeks. Ah, okay, wow. I think it was. So he gave, he gave us a real flavour of what mm. it was. So mm. like I say, you know, they just um, he, he would just the boot would be on the other foot. He would perform for a while, and then he'd get up and say, right, I'm going for a drink now. Anybody right. else fancy a go? Yeah. And so that's what it was, and and, and it's legendary. He used to go drinking in there as well, mm. and it was just around the corner from Haddon Hall. Yeah, of course, yeah. So I won't say any more, really, because uh, Steve says it all in the interview, but uh, it's well worth a listen. And, uh, and 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 so he talks about the three tons having been there and having played there with Bowie. So you don't get much better than that, really. The Z of David Bowie, with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. T is for Terry Burns. Okay, uh, Bowie's half-brother, older by ten years. Terence Guy Adair Burns was born on the 5th of November 1937 at Pembury Hospital in Tunbridge Wells in Kent. Adair was a family name on his mother's side, and everyone called him Terry. His parents were Jack Wolf Rosenberg and Peggy Burns, who met in the midst of economic depression and the growing fear of the onset of the Second World War. Rosenberg was the son of a French-Jewish furrier, was a barman at the Culverton Park Arms Hotel in Tunbridge Wells, where Margaret Peggy was a living nanny to the owner's children. Rosenberg left Margaret before Terry was born. In early 1948, a year after Bowie's birth, Terry went to live with his mother and her husband, John, at Stansfield Road in London SW9. Terry's surname was changed to Jones by Deed Pole, although he would change it back to Burns as soon as he came of age. Sharp in academics and a diligent student, Burns developed a refined taste for music and was well-read and cultured by his early teens and adulthood. In the 1950s, inspired by authors and musicians of the Beat Generation, he enjoyed reading the writings of Jack Kerouac, William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg and listening to Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Jerry Mulligan and other talented jazz musicians of the social and literary movement. Like his younger brother David, he also liked writing music and singing in local pubs. So, you know, often it is a case that, uh, um, you know, your older brother or mm. sister uh, would introduce you to music and you'd pick it up and run with it. And it looks like it wasn't the case with me, uh, but it looks yeah. very much like it was for David. Yeah, especially, you know, with Terry being nearly 10 years older as well. Uh, Apparently, Terry gave David his own copy of Jack Kerouac's On the Road, which Bowie said gave him the impetus to learn the sax, along with his love of Little Richard. He said, that's why I bought a sax. The whole thing just fitted together so well. I wanted to be just like Sal Paradise and Dean Moriarty, the two main characters on the road. And I almost made it as much as one can within the confines of Bromley. Right. Um, it was also at Terry's suggestion that Bowie takes up saxophone lessons with local player Ronnie Ross, who, lest we forget, plays on Walk on the Wild Side as yeah. well. Yeah, that was important. Terry had a strained relationship with Bowie's father, John, so much so that when the family moved to Bromley in early 1953... Terry chose to stay at Stansfield Road and take up lodgings next door to the family home. He didn't join them in Bromley until two years later. So all's not well there, is it? No. And Burns didn't stay for long enough, though, leaving in November 1955 to enlist with the Royal Air Force, where he was posted to Malta and Libya. He returned from the Air Force in 1958, after which he became an accounts clerk for the Amalgamated Press in London. Around this time, he started to show the first signs of schizophrenia. 
So in February 1967, David and Terry went to see Cream at the Bromwell Club in Bromley. In 1993, talking to Radio 1, Bowie recalled, I was very disturbed because the music was affecting him adversely. His particular illness was somewhere between schizophrenia and manic depression, and I knew that he was getting into a pretty tranced-out state watching Cream because I don't think he'd ever been to something as loud as that in his life. I remember having to take him home because it was really affecting him. After the death of Bowie's father, Terry and Bowie's mother left the family home in Bromley in April 1970 and moved into a house in Beckenham. At this point in time, after the success of Space Oddity, Bowie was famous enough to warrant this piece of news making the Bromley and Kentish Times. <laughs> okay. In January 1971, Terry moved into Haddon Hall with Bowie and Angie and the whole entourage. Bowie told Circus Magazine at the time, I'm not sure if he's kind of run away or what. Uh, the majority of the people in my family have been in some kind of mental institution. As for my brother, he doesn't want to leave. He likes it very much. He continued, he's just been changed to a new one, psychiatric hospital, which he doesn't like. But the old one, Cane Hill, he really liked. He'd be happy to spend the rest of his life there, mainly because most of the people are on the same wavelength as him. And he's not a freak, he's a very straight person. And also, I just I need to say at this point in time, uh, Cane Hill was covered, wasn't it? It's the, um, that is a, the uh, actual building, which is on the cartoon version of The Man Who Sold the World. Yeah, absolutely. In February 1972, Terry married Olga, a fellow patient at Cane Hill Hospital, at Croydon Registry Office. Uh, talking about um, Terry uh, to Cameron Crowe, Bowie gave a series of interviews, didn't he, to Cameron Crowe in yeah. 1975. Crowe wrote, uh, Bowie's family on his mother's side was riddled with mental illness. His aunt Una had been institutionalised for depression and schizophrenia, was given electroshock treatment and had died in the late 30s. Another aunt had schizophrenic episodes. A third had been lobotomised. Most of all, there was his mother's son, his older half-brother Terry Burns, who eventually was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. In 1966, while Bowie and Burns were walking to a Cream concert, Burns fell to the street and screamed, claiming he saw flames rising up from the cracks in the pavement. By the time Bowie recorded The Man Who Sold the World, Terry had been confined to a London's Cane Hill Hospital. So we know this is a tragic story, isn't it? So um, just his demise here. This is from the Pushing Ahead of the Dame website. Uh, they write, on the morning of the 16th of January 1985, during a snowstorm that left the Cane Hill Hospital understaffed, Terry left the asylum grounds. He went across the road into the Colston South train station, walked to the end of the platform. When the express train appeared in the distance, he jumped down onto the track, laid down and wait for it to, uh, waited for it to hit him. Burns had laid on the same track the month before but had bowled away from the rail at the last minute, had thrown himself out of a window in Kane Hospital in 1982 also. The following year, Peter and Lenny Gilman's biography, alias David Bowie, was published with an aggrieved ant as one of its key sources. It offered as a central premise that the Bowie family was riddled with insanity and that Bowie's tortured relationship with his mentally ill half-brother and his fear of going mad inspired many of his songs, except for a note included with the flowers he sent to Burns' funeral, paraphrasing a line from Blade runner, Bowie kept silent. Certainly, Terry Burns had been essential to Bowie's development, having introduced his younger half-brother to everything from Tibetan Buddhism to jazz. And the period in which Bowie and Burns had last regular contact, the Haddon Hall days of 70 and 71, when Burns would sometimes stay with the Bowies on the weekend, coincided with Bowie's quantum leap into songwriting. He would introduce himself to guests as Terry's brother. So, we'll look at some of the songs now, won't yeah. we? But yeah. it, it is definitely true to say that um, it was all, it was never 
never that far from Bowie's mind, was it, seemingly? He would often mention Terry in interviews and obviously, again, referencing songs. Yeah. And people would sometimes speculate as to whether he was referencing Terry or not. Uh, but because of the fact that Bowie would mention him so much, you couldn't help but put two and two together and get either four or five, yeah. one, whatever it might be. Yeah, and Bowie would often say he had this fear, didn't he, of, of the madness running in the family and being affected by it and how it would reach him and the rest. So, Which in itself just brings about anxiety, which yeah. is, in itself is a form of mental illness, isn't yeah, it? You know, it's just course. affecting your mental health. So it's, it's a terrible, terrible cyclical yeah. thing that Bowie was involved in by the look of it. Yeah, as mentioned, on the cover of the US version of The Man Who Sold the World, there was a drawing of Cain Hill. There were also the songs All the Mad Men, after all. Later on, Five Years, The Man Who Sold the World, Bewley Brothers, songs about doubles and brothers and shadows, uh, about lost children, madness and isolation. In 1993, promoting black tie, white noise, Bowie said he'd never really known his half-brother, who in his youth would disappear for years and then turn up at the house in Bromley, seemingly just to upset his mother. I think I unconsciously exaggerated his importance. I invented this hero worship to discharge my guilt and failure and to set myself free from my own hang-ups. Mm. So that is a quote from David about his uh, relationship with uh, with Terry. Okay, so move on to the songs now, shall we? So how about the Bewley brothers? Certainly, uh, Bowie said in 2000, he said, I was never quite sure what real position Terry had in my life, whether Terry was a real person or whether I was actually referencing another part of me. And I think Bewley brothers was really about that. Okay, you got width of a circle. Bowie's lyrics are influenced by Terry's frequent visits to Haddon Hall. Yeah. Interviewed in February 1971, Bowie was asked about all the madmen. The guy in the story has been placed in a mental institution, and there are a number of people in that institution being released each week that are his friends. They've now said that he can leave as well. He continued, but he wants to stay there because he gets a lot more enjoyment out of staying there with the people he considers sane. He doesn't want to go through the psychic compromises imposed on him by the outer world. Bowie then paused. Ah, it's my brother, because that's where he's at. Another song, Five Years Possibly. Uh, Bowie told Rolling Stone magazine in January 1976, he said, My records were selling and I was being a man in demand. I thought of my brother and I wrote Five Years. And Jump They Say, released eight years after Terry's death, was semi-based on my impression of my stepbrother, said Bowie in The Enemy. So that's it for this episode of the A to Z of David Bowie. But once again, before you go... If you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things. And for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Why? So now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right. Mark, Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Materials such as interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends, there'll be regular filmed Bowie quizzes, Bowie guitar tutorials, unreleased archive written material, competitions, and perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Knock, and Jason Reed visiting various Bowie places of interest. And much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. Month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, bowiecheapthings.com. Book early. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.